Any other questions about the scheduling of things? That's a great one, brother. Thanks for asking. It's a little little tricky. And the reason we're not doing Bible study the first Sunday is we uh, we think we, we would be initiating too much at the same time, and we want all hands on deck. Now, we'll be in our Bible study rooms to host those who may come by and want to just take a look and chat, things like that. Okay, good. Uh, so here's the deal. We, we started Luke chapter 17 uh, last week, the last part. I mentioned to you it has to do with future events. The Lord's followers asked him about the future. And then I asked us to go to a parallel text, Matthew 24, because the Lord's answer to their question is much more complete in that text. So we began looking at it, covered the first part, and I'd like for us to continue today. And again, a little bit of an apology to you. I might have taken on a little more than can be accommodated in two, uh, two Sundays, but we'll do the best we can. So uh, if I'm not covering all the bases, and I'm not for sure, about future events, let me just, it's a survey that we're looking to. So uh, let's pick up where we left off, Matthew chapter 24, uh, the Lord had been giving characteristics that will signify a particular period of time preceding his return. I mentioned to you uh, it's, it's referred to as the tribulation period. He's given characteristics of it. Here are some more, verse 10 of Matthew 24. So again, we're not abandoning Luke 17. This is a complementary passage to it. So Matthew 24, verse 10. At that time, again, a reference to a future time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. In that time, the pressure to conform will be so great that those who have merely professed to know Christ will probably reveal their true colors and turn against those who actually possess Christ. So it's easy to say, I am a Christian. The polls indicate, I think, many more say they are Christians than who probably are. In that day, persecution will really make clear who is and who ain't. So one of the characteristics of that time to come is a persecution of those who are really believers. And, verse 11, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. It'll be a trying day, and trying times, desperate times, create a susceptibility to those pretenders to the throne, offering solutions and approaches to the calamity, and so many false prophets will arise. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. We're seeing signs of this, I think, in an increasing measure today. Is it just me, but almost every day you uh, become privy to some tragedy where a father kills children, his children, a child kills a parent, uh, I know these things have sadly happened, but they seem to be happen happening in a much more frequent manner where the normal family bond 
even that seems to be being violated. Well, in this end time, lawlessness, un lack of restraint, will be so great, people's love, even for those who you would think would normally be the objects of their love, will grow cold. But, verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, don't think this means you earn your salvation by hanging in there. No, it means the evidence of salvation is that you endure until the end. Why? Because the Lord gives you staying power. So this is not a, an indication of you hanging on. This is an indication of you being in the grasp of the Lord Jesus and coming through even the most horrific times of persecution and oppression. Now, I'm referring to you, but I should say this. If you're a Christian today, you will not be in this situation tomorrow <clears throat> because in this panorama of events to come, I mentioned to you last week, I think the strongest case could be made that the next event on the horizon is the rapture of the church. We spoke about that last time prior to this period of time. Why? Because this time is characterized by the uh, outpouring of God's wrath upon the world. You will never be, if you're a Christian, a recipient of the wrath of your father. He loves you. He will discipline you, and we go astray, don't we? And just like you will discipline a child or a grandchild, that's a whole lot different than your wrath being poured out on your child or grandchild, you see. So, so because the wrath of Almighty God in our place has befallen our Savior, we're absolved from it. So... It says in 1 John, he who has the Son has the life. Now, here's the alternative. But he who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You see? It's one or the other. The wrath of God on Jesus for you or the wrath of God on you for yourself. You see? So, so the, the church is not here during this tribulation Period. Okay. Um, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom. Good news about the kingdom, Jesus being king, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. This happens during the tribulation period. Now, who is preaching? 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> That's the claim of the Watchtower Society. I don't mean to be uh, insulting, but that is the claim of the Watchtower Society that the 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation are the elect members of the Watchtower Society or, or Jehovah's Witnesses. But folks, that cannot be. Let's give words an understandable meaning. If you read in the book of Revelation, it will say uh, something about the nature of these 144,000. It will say, for instance, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, on and on and on. Those are tribes of Israel. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. It means a few things. It's not Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not even Baptists. It's Jews. 
12,000 from each of the tribes. What does it mean? It means God's not finished with the Jews yet. Therefore, we should not be either. Be careful that you're on the right side of this particular issue. So in that day, you will have 144,000 people, the equivalent of 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Good night. He really went around with great conviction and passion, didn't he, sharing news of the gospel of the kingdom. Well, in that day, you have 140,000. Now, what happens to most of them? They're killed, martyred for the faith. That's why Revelation says, the blood of the saints cries out to me from the ground. God takes note of that, you see. So this is a time uh, of uh, great persecution of believers and in verse 15, a time characterized by a key event which I think is perhaps the most distinctive characteristic or distinguishing factor of this great tribulation period. It's in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, those words, are they in a different font in your Bible? Abomination of desolation? Are they like bigger or bolder? Or, yeah, and that means uh, it is a reference to a phrase taken from another part of Scripture, in this case, Old Testament. In this case, Daniel chapter 9. So when you see the abomination of desolation, and uh, just to prove to you that I'm right about this, which was spoken of through Daniel. See, it says right there. So it's highlighted because it's invoked as a quotation from a quotation in Daniel. John, who's writing Revelation, is now uh, using it in Revelation. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. What, can you tell me where or what that is, the holy place? What do you think that is? It's the temple in Jerusalem. You are correct. When you see something which is abominable, it, it's called by Daniel an abomination of desolation. When you see it in a temple, well, excuse me, is there a temple standing in Jerusalem now? So we're talking about something that is not now but will be, right? At least get that. I'm not a date setter by no means, but I know this is future because there is no temple there now. So when you see something abominable take place in the temple, which will be reconstructed, it says, let the reader understand. Now, that's a quotation uh, from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which says, and he... Now, the he is someone called Antichrist. What does that mean? A counterfeit of the real Christ. A personage, a personage who will come on the world scene, who will want all that which is due the real Christ. He will make a firm covenant with the many. It's a peace treaty. People are trying today, particularly in the Middle East. Nobody is succeeding at it. He will. How? I don't know. I know the world is hungry for peace, especially in the Middle East. Somehow he'll be able to broker it. Israel will lay down her arms. Israel's neighbors will sign a, a peace accord. Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, Israel. This one he will say, and I promise you we will reconstruct your holy temple in Jerusalem. Wow. 
How's that all going to be? I don't have any idea. But the scriptures say it will be. So this is quite a good deal. So this is what happens. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. A week? No. You're going to have to just accept this now because I don't have the time to really go into much detail. It's actually a week of years. So if there are seven days in a week, this is actually a period of seven years. Now, how do I get that? Um, you just, no time <laughs> for today. <laughs> it's a week of, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, so if it's a week of years, seven years, the middle of the week means after three and a half years. He brokers peace. Everything's pretty cool. And then everything really goes south. At the mid-week period, at the three-and-a-half-year period, he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. See, those are the rituals which took place when there was a constructed temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish people are thrilled. Yay, yay. Our traditions, our culture, everything's cool. This leader is just, he's our man. But he puts a stop to it all. And then it says, on the wing of abominations, so that's the phrase we're referring to, will come one who makes desolate. Uh, what does he do? He inserts himself in the temple as the object of worship. <clears throat> he says to Israel, I am your God. In fact, he so successfully implants himself in the temple that the world rallies behind him. One world religion. In the end time period, which we're speaking of, there will be one world government and one world religion. All of these crazy distinctions, religious distinctions and governmental will be laid aside. One world economy, one world government, one world religion. Far-fetched? No. Look, <clears throat> Greece is on the verge of bankruptcy. Every member of the European Union is affected. If you don't think the economic challenges of one nation, like dominoes, affects all the others, you're missing the point. And in desperation, there will be one world government. There's already the euro in, you know, the United States of Europe. I mean, it's going to be all kinds of stuff like that, what Revelation tells us. And one world religion, headed by this one who plants himself in the temple. Now, verse 16. Then, those who are in Judea, a province in Israel, must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things uh, out that are in his house. Who's ever in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. And this is a parallel, by the way, to what the Lord is, has said in Luke 17. Again, I'm not skipping Luke 17. This is a parallel to it. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Why not on a Sabbath? Any thoughts? Everything in Israel shuts down on the Sabbath. Transportation shuts down. Stores are closed. Uh, elevators um, stop on every floor. 
Why? The rabbis say if you push an elevator button, it's a form of work. You're engaging electricity, and work is prohibited on the Sabbath. So let's say you're in a 40-story building. You're in a rush to flee for your life. You're stopping on every floor. That's exactly what's going on. So the Lord says in those days, pray not beyond the Sabbath, for then there will be, here's the term, a great tribulation. Now, there's always been tribulation since Genesis chapter 3. I know that. But not like this. Not my words. Look, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred, see, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So for those who say, you people who believe in the great tribulation, don't you know Christians have always been persecuted? Yes, but not like this. The Lord just said, not since the beginning, nor ever will be. In fact, verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Do you know we have the capacity to destroy the entire human race now? Did you know that? We can, keep, we can wipe nuclear. We can just... So I suppose when the Lord spoke, one would say, what? How could this be? Oh, it's easy now. You, you know, you just push a button and there it goes. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, who are the elect? Those are people who turn to the Lord during this time of great tribulation. People who are saved. Verse 23, then, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. Now, why would people say that? Because in desperate times, you look for a Savior. That's why um, the world's most cruel dictators historically have come to power during a time usually of economic oppression and deprivation. People are just so desperate, they cast caution to the wind and rally behind Stalin, Hitler, others may be closer to home. <clears throat> People cast caution to the wind, and they just say, uh, we're desperate. So the Lord is saying, if they say, here's your Savior, there's your Savior, don't believe him. Why? Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I've told you in advance. Uh, why did he do so? Because they asked him. They said, when will these things be? When will you return? I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. Well, then how will believers alive during the tribulation, how will they know when the Lord returns? Verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It won't be subtle. It won't be unclear. It won't be private. They will know. Verse 28, something else. Wherever the corpse is, there vultures gather. What a horrific metaphor of loss of life. Corpses, dead bodies, birds feeding on them. What is this a reference to? The final war. <clears throat> something called Armageddon. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. Let me read this to you. Verse 13 of Revelation 16. I saw, John's writing, I saw coming out of the mouth of, I'm going to mention three personages, the dragon. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. The dragon, the beast, the false prophet, who are they? Dragon, Satan. Um, the um, beast, Antichrist. Uh, and the false prophet, false prophet. It's a counterfeit trinity, a counterfeit of the Holy Trinity. Satan would be as God the Father. Antichrist would be as God the Son. False prophet as God the Holy Spirit. Everything about Satan is a counterfeit. He cannot create. Only the creator has creative capacity. Uh, the evil one copies. He's copied the Trinity. So what comes out of their mouth, it says, are three unclean spirits like frogs. They're not frogs. Why the analogy of frogs? Because frogs to Jewish people is an unkosher food item. We don't eat them. Now, I did when I was in Louisiana, because <laughs> you eat everything in Louisiana. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, there's a cultural deal, the frog thing, Jews don't do. So, so what are they? Are they actual frogs? No. Revelation 16, next verse, verse 14. They are spirits of demons. That's what it says. Well, this is very dramatic stuff. I'm just reading what it says. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. How do all the nations of the world rally together? They are demonically motivated. Spirits of demons, deceptive demons. And they rally all the kings of the world. But this wonderful phrase, it's for the war of the great day of God. While the world's leaders, power brokers, are working their plan, it's sovereign God who's going to make use of it. It says it's the great day of God the Almighty. Now, what are the armies of the world going to do? They're coming against Israel. Far-fetched? Okay, if you think so. But we're already seeing the seeds of it already. They come against Israel, but God uses it towards his own end. For instance, Joel chapter 3, verse 2. I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, that is a valley right outside of Jerusalem. You can stand in it today. God said, I will gather all the nations to that place. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. You know, that's all that land for peace, baloney. Anyway, God says they're going to come to destroy Israel, but I'll use it as a time to destroy them. The final war is located, according to Revelation 16:16, 16, 16, at a place called Har-Mageddon. And they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Har means hill, Mageddon of Megiddo. It's the hill or Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is a city in Israel. 
It was one of Solomon's fortress cities. It guards one of the entranceways to a big valley called the Jezreel Valley. You can stand on the hill of Megiddo and look into the Jezreel Valley today. The hill of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, is from which we get the word Armageddon. And you have this big open plain, 13 miles long or 20 miles long, I forget, seven or eight miles wide. It's not actually the place of a battle. It's the place of the staging area for a battle. But Armageddon is not one battle. It's a full-on military campaign. It actually is throughout the land of Israel. And there are many, many episodes in this campaign. But the objective is Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That's what it says. Jerusalem, why? What's so special? Jesus is coming again to Jerusalem. Antichrist read the Bible. Antichrist wants a temple in which he is worshipped so that there is no temple in which Jesus is worshipped in that holy place, in that holy city. That's why there's such interest in Jerusalem today. It's a spiritual thing, though people think it's political. Our government, I told you last week, refuses thus far to establish its embassy in the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. It placed it in Tel Aviv. Interesting, because it doesn't want to give indication that that's actually Israel's capital. Our government wants Jerusalem, under the guise of peace, to be divided, so that half is the, for the Jews and half is uh, the capital, East Jerusalem, of the newly formed Palestinian state. Power brokers of the world have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Jesus is coming back to that place. That's why it's a place of such interest to the anti-Jesus. And that's why the anti-Jesus is sending out his messengers, emissaries, demons, to rally the world against Jerusalem. That's what it says. Satan wants it, but God will have it. Zechariah 12, 9. And in that day, I... <clears throat> Excuse me. I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. When I tell you, make sure you're on God's side with reference to Israel. I ain't kidding. In that day, they're coming against Jerusalem, but I will come against all they who come against Jerusalem. Now, this time of great tribulation... And this final campaign of Armageddon comes to an end in a cataclysmic way, according to Matthew 24, now verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. Imagine these things in the atmosphere. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
uh, cataclysmic unsettledness in physical creation order preceding what comes next in verse 30. And then, and then, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's the second coming of Christ Jesus. Not subtle, not questionable, pretty clear. So, the order of events, rapture next. The Lord comes for his church. Tribulation period thereafter. And then at the end, the return of Christ with his church to establish his kingdom on earth. Jerusalem being his capital city, his holy city, for 1,000 years. It's called the millennium. Rapture, great tribulation, millennial reign of Christ. That's the order of things. When he returns, verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Trumpet is a, a very familiar signal to Jewish people. We blow the shofar often to call us together for assembly, either worship or an enemy is coming. A trumpet will be sounded. And these angels of God will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Why are they scattered? Because they're being persecuted and they're running for cover during the tribulation period. But the Lord will gather them all together. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now I must pause. See the phrase, this generation? What does it mean? This generation will not pass away until all these things, aforementioned things, pass away. Some say this generation are the people to whom the Lord is speaking. That would mean the disciples in his day, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Remember, it's on the Mount of Olive. Now he's speaking to them. This generation, the ones he's speaking to, won't pass away till all this take place. And so those are people <clears throat> who say, since that generation has passed away, all these things in in a sense, have already taken place. They're, these are not future events, some would say. These are things that took place specifically in A.D. 70, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That's a position some hold to. I do not think it's accurate at all. So then what does it mean, this generation? All these things will not pass away until this generation uh, uh, pass, will not take place until this generation passes away. By this generation, I don't think it's the generation the Lord is speaking to. It's the generation the Lord is speaking about. All these, I'm telling you, disciples, all these things which I'm telling you will precede my return. All these things will not take a place until the generation alive during the tribulation period passes away. That's kind of what's, in my opinion, are going on. Well, 
the Lord has told us, them, specifics about the time of his second coming. Can't we know of it more specifically? No. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows except crazy people on the radio <laughs> who claim to know the date, except uh, uh, certain groups who claim to set dates, except, except people who write books that foolish people like you and I buy who claim to know the date. But of the, the Lord has told plenty. It, 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 my coming will be preceded by deception, one world government, proliferation of one world religion, a peace treaty with Israel, a reconstruction of the temple, famine, wars, rumors of war, or earthquakes, an abomination of desolation. All, all, isn't that enough? And that particular generation, it's not going to pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Isn't that enough? Time, date, don't go there. Verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He doesn't tell us specifically when, but it'll, he tells us what it'll be like. Verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, this again parallels what is in Luke 17. Same thing there as in the days of Noah. Uh, what, what were the days of Noah like? Well, uh, in those days before the flood, prior to judgment, before the flood, what were people doing? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They were engaged in activities of daily living, even though cataclysmic judgment was just on the horizon. They, they acted like it didn't matter to them. So this, and, and verse 39, they didn't understand until the flood came. And took him all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he just told us. I'm not going to tell you specifically when. But I'll tell you what it'll be like. It'll be apathy. It'll be people doing their thing. They're just going on. Even though a judgment that makes the flood look like a cakewalk is on the horizon. Now the Lord is going to come again. Why? I mean he came once. We beat him up pretty badly. Sent him home with holes in him, bruises and wounds. We sent him back to his father that way. Why would he come again? You tell me. I'll tell you why. Two reasons. To judge and to deliver. Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come. Birds are being called come assemble for what the great supper of god you don't want to be invited so that you may eat these birds you may eat the flesh of the kings the flesh of commanders the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free men and slaves small and great a meal is mentioned it's a meal uh, of judgment. God summoning birds, a metaphor of judgment, to devour the flesh. All the power brokers, small and great, who are apart from the king of kings. But that very chapter, chapter 19, previously mentioned another mealtime. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
two suppers mentioned in Revelation 19. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb. One is the great supper of God. If you're a believer, you'll be at the first. You won't be at the second. Marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when he consummates his weddedness to us. We are the bride of Christ. He is our heavenly husband. That is our wedding meal together. Marriage supper of the Lamb. You are given an invitation. You must receive it. If you refuse it, you will be compelled to this next supper, one of judgment. Why is the Lord Jesus coming? Two reasons. To deliver or to judge. Which will it be? There's no other option. With whom are you aligned? The world or the creator thereof? It determines your eternal destiny. He who has the Son will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, will live forevermore. He who does not have the Son does not have that quality of enduring wonderful eternal life. Instead, the wrath of God shall eternally abide on him. That's the way it is. There is no one world religion. There are no alternative roads to the throne of grace and to heaven. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Randy? Correct. It's more than safe. I think it's biblical. Thank you, brother. Randy's question, this marriage supper of the Lamb... It, does it take place at the rapture? It does not. We, we will join in at it with the tribulation saints. They're not with us at the rapture yet. Then we all get together, all of the bride of Christ at that marriage supper where we will be with him forevermore. At least a million. At least, brother. Listen, I want to share one thing with you that meets with, as we close, uh, differences of opinion in this Matthew 24 text. Can you see verse 40 and 41? Just take a look, and with that, we'll close. Then, in that day, the Lord's return, then there will be two men in the field. And again, this is just what it says in Luke's account as well. There'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Some take this to be an indication of the rapture, what will happen. And it says, uh, one will be taken, and a positive construction is put on that, meaning the one who believes will be taken up in the rapture, the other will be left behind. Though that is a reality at the rapture, this has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. This is in the context, remember, not of the rapture, but the great tribulation time period immediately preceding the return of the Lord. So what does this mean then? Two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken. Taken to judgment. One is taken away to judgment. The other is left alive to enter into the kingdom of God. 
totally different what we, than what we traditionally in our churches have said it means. And why, do we, why are we wrong about this? Because we proof text, because we don't study scripture in context. We say, this is a nice verse, sounds like the rapture, I'll use it. Has nothing to do with the rapture. You don't want to be taken in this sense. These are ones taken to judgment. You want to be left behind. What does that mean? Left behind to participate in the marriage supper of the land, to enter into his kingdom, to be his subject forevermore. How could it be anything but that if all that has preceded it is about that time of great tribulation, you see? The rapture's already taken place. You've already been taken in the rapture if you're a believer. These are folks in the tribulation either taken away into judgment or left behind having been delivered from the wrath of God so as to enter into his kingdom forevermore. So... So uh, I hear this all the time in churches, and I usually keep a poker face. What a bad analogy that is. To I usually just, cause, and I say, hey, nobody's perfect. I'm closer than a lot, <laughs> I think. But, so, you know, it's, it's not the biggest thing in the history of the world. But since we're in the text, I just want to tell you the Olivet Discourse um, is leading us into characterizations of the tribulation period. You're not there. I'm not there. You've already been taken away. Thank God in the rapture of the church. These are those who through tribulation, it, humankind is again in two categories, those taken away to judgment, those left to enter into the kingdom of God and eternal bliss. Charlie? Yeah, 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 I think you're right. I think you're right. It's a, it's a foreshadowing, isn't it, of, of the ultimate abomination to come. Look, God bless you folks. Listen, uh, and he will, and he has. Um, the best is yet to come, but it's going to get much worse before. We just need to know that. So all the things that are happening now, don't be too blown away. We're told about stuff. We're moving. T These are birth pangs. <laughs> we're moving towards a grand cataclysm um, uh, of, of, of things. Um, and everything, there's nothing happening today that contravenes what we're reading about. Everything seems to fit. So that ought to give you real confidence that, that our God reigns. Your father's on the throne. He's not lathered up about anything. He's using everything. All the kings of the world, he can use them towards his intended purpose one way or the other. You just got to be sure you're on the right side. And the right side is to be with the Father through his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. Then you're on the right side. So, yeah, Mike? Yeah, yeah. You see, the, um, Mike brings up a, a point. It, it, when it comes to who the uh, Antichrist is, you want to be careful about 
spending too much time thinking about I, who he is specifically. Don't, you know, don't spend too much time doing that. But you need to know that Satan has his man, Antichrist. He has had him on the, ready to enter the world scene in every generation. That's why it has, it has looked in previous generations as if certain ones could really have been that one. They could have been if the timing was right. And it isn't. So you need to know now, the Antichrist undoubtedly is in the world now because Satan already has his man ready to enter the world scene. Now, it, I'm not saying today, tomorrow, I don't know anything about that. I'm just saying he's always got his man ready. Just as the father has his son ready to return at the right time, Satan has his um, counterfeit second person of the Trinity ready to enter the world state. So that's why if you see certain... You can see, don't you find it interesting, i got to be a little careful here, that certain people can rally so much attention, accolades, and uh, support with minimal uh, life experience um, behind it. It just gives a glimpse of, oh my goodness, how the masses can cast quickly caution to the wind and cast votes for ones who even on, from a rational point of view don't seem to have sufficient life experience to be elevated to such a position. So you say, how could an Antichrist be someone who brokers world peace? Come on. It's not far-fetched at all. Isn't our Father good to tell us of these things in advance? So, Lord Jesus, we want to really function as your representatives today more than ever. We want to demonstrate and declare truth. Thy word is truth. And, Lord Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming again. Would you adopt many, many more into your family prior to that and use us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. See you next time.